Hello and welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, where we explore the future of our economy with Britain's leading entrepreneurs. With me, Jim McLaughlin, a former Downing Street advisor on business and entrepreneurship. Childcare wasn't really an issue that I had to deal with when I was in number 10. I left Downing Street in part because I knew that working in number 10 and being a new dad weren't really going to be compatible. I knew I'd probably end up being a rubbish dad and a rubbish spat, and that did not seem much of a life. Although I do worry that our politics sees a lot of special advisors and officials leave as they have families. Hopefully, a silver lining of the pandemic will be that it forces in flexible working and flexible childcare, which we partly explore in today's episode. It's a cliche, but having a child changes the way you look at everything. My daughter has just turned two, and I often wonder and think about what careers she'll be embarking on. Perhaps when we are on season 126 of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future in 2037, we can explore that. You think I'm joking, but I love hosting this podcast and talking to all the interesting people that are attempting to change the world. You can check out more of the background to the podcast at www.jobsofthefuture.co and how recording strategically in nap times led to the beginning of it. And as always, you can drop us a line at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. Today's guest has founded a solution to the childcare crisis called Bubble, which looks to make childcare much easier. And on occasion, I have used it when we've needed to record an emergency podcast. But before this episode starts, a big thank you to our series partners, Octopus. Octopus was founded in 2000 by Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson, who sat in a living room using the yellow pages to get their first clients. Octopus now has 10 billion under management and employ over 750 people with a mission to invest in the people, the ideas and industries that will help change the world. Many companies like to say they back entrepreneurs, but Octopus really put their money where their mouth is. And throughout this series, we'll be hearing more about where they are backing the next generation of great entrepreneurs. Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, Ari. Hi, thanks for having me. In our third series, we're doing a quick fire questions to get started. And you founded Bubble a few years ago. And if you were bumping into the Prime Minister at a cocktail party, what's your 90 second pitch to the Prime Minister about what Bubble does? Well, the Prime Minister's own any troubles have been well documented. So hopefully I'd have a, I'd have a captive audience there. Um, but look, what I tell him is Bubble's an on-demand app that helps parents find trusted, flexible childcare uh, quickly, uh, easily, safely, most importantly. Uh, we're a technology company and the USP about Bubble is our app. It sits on top of our social network, which allows parents to tap into the trusted carers that already exist within their social circles. Because the thing I realized as a parent myself is when it comes to childcare, Trust is obviously the most important thing, but what parents value most is seeing the people, the great people that their friends, colleagues, classmates, other parents they trust, who do they use? It's a simple real world word of mouth recommendation. And all Bubble does is made that really, really easy. We've brought it to people's fingertips through our app. 
So what the app effectively allows people to do is makes it really, really quickly to discover, book and pay local child carers to come over nannies, babysitters for whatever you need them for. You know, what's Robert Bubble is flexibility. We give parents back flexibility. We say that our mission is to help them be all they need to be, because what we've realized as parents ourselves and from thousands of parents who use us today is when you solve childcare for a parent, when you make it really easy for them to find people that they love and their kids love quickly, you are just opening up so many more doors or reopening doors in their lives. You're giving them back opportunity. You're giving them back spontaneity. You're giving them back freedom. Um, and whatever they want to use it for, be it for work or for their personal lives or mental health or well-being or, or relationships, when you solve that for parents, it's really life-changing. So, you know, at Bubble, yes, we're a service that ultimately makes it really, really quick, really easy, really safe uh, for parents in the UK to find trusted childcare. And I can vouch for that having used you as well on a number of occasions. One of the things I was curious about, though, is, is what's in a name? Where did Bubble come from? You founded it six years ago, so well before uh, the pandemic. But obviously, bubbles have become quite synonymous with things. Has that been a help or a hindrance during this time? Um, yeah, so on the latter point, a bit of both, really. So, like in the in during the pandemic, like our, our organic web traffic was going through the roof, and all of a sudden we were ranking like because everyone was searching for childcare bubbles. So that did push a huge amount of traffic. Uh, to our to our website, which which is a portal in, into downloading our app, so that was quite exciting, and we tried to do a few things to to kind of jump off the back of that and make sure that the web was optimized and and the content we were putting out was was the type that these people were searching for. But ultimately, it was skewing numbers quite heavily, so I'm helpful in that sense. In that most you know the vast majority of those searches weren't from people necessarily looking for our service; they were grandparents wondering whether they can be included in a childcare bubble. You know, our customer service team was started to get inundated with queries from people just looking for advice about which could have been, you know, which was quite complex around who can be in a bubble and who can't be. Yes. So it was, it was a little bit of both. It definitely helped to some degree. Look, ultimately you never want to turn down uh, traffic and it was childcare related, but it, it wasn't necessarily what we'd expect. So, you know, I, I've been saying to my uh, very kind and supportive, you know, shareholders over the last year is, you know, 2020 was the year of the bubble, uh, but probably not the one we were, we were expecting or, or anticipating. And look, name-wise, thinking back, you know, the, the concept of what bubble is, it's, it's about trust. You know, we're in the business of digitizing trust in what we do. And particularly with that social element that I talked about of how do I actually see who the people around me, who's in my trust bubble, so to speak. And, and, and our app makes it really, really easy to see that, to bring people into your bubble. Uh, and that was really how, why we settled on that name, because it kind of talked to trust really. And, and how do I find it? And how can you help me leverage it and, and find childcare off the back of it? I saw from your LinkedIn that you have a, uh, a degree in broadcast journalism, which makes you eminently more qualified to host a podcast <laughs> than me, frankly. Um, one of the things I found fascinating about your career is that you're in your mid thirties, you founded bubble five years ago. But prior to that, you'd done a number of different things as well. You'd worked at gambling company, Betfair, and also you'd worked at Market Invoice as well. So very different sectors, as well as the kind of broadcasting and commentary side of things. And I mean, what would your advice be to people that are thinking of changing career and how to go about it? Look, I think that the broadcast journalism commentary is like out there on its own. 
there's not a great deal of transfer that I can say is transferable, but then, then I did, you know, five years at Betfair. I did then, uh, three years at FinTech marketplace market invoice, which was much more of a startup, which was a real fantastic ride. And then I had to set up bubble. But actually when I look back on those, there, there are loads of similarities. So they were all marketplaces, effectively digital marketplaces, Betfair is a gambling marketplace. Market invoice was matching investors with SMEs. Bubble is matching parents with carers. I often like remark or reflect on how it was as a, as someone working in those businesses, it's a lot of the marketing challenges, a lot of the product challenges, a lot of the operational challenges. They're very similar. They're very the same. And I think that's probably the case a lot, especially around like technology companies, you know, thinking off the top of my head, I think if, if you're going into a profession, a profession like legal or medical or, or whatnot, I would say, yes, I, you know, staying the course and you spend your time accounting, training, et cetera. Uh, you don't probably don't want to be jumping about as much, but when you're working in the commercial departments or product departments or marketing departments at digital businesses, a lot of the challenges, they exist from one sector to another. So just small example is my time at Mark the Invoice, uh, with SME finance, you know, there's a huge amount of emphasis on verification. So at Market Invoice, we were funding, we would upfront fund the invoices of an SME to a blue chip debtor. So Apple owns them a hundred grand. SME presents an invoice for a hundred grand. That's not going to be paid for 90 days. Market invoices platform and our investors would fund that invoice upfront for a fee. Huge part of that is how do you know the invoice is legitimate? So someone's uploaded it via, via an online portal, but what can you do to in real time and digitally and scalably, like check the veracity of that invoice and the veracity of that business owner. And that's stuff we're applying at bubble. When we think about how do we verify carers on the platform. And so payments processing, things like that, so much stuff was transferable, but yeah, to go back to my, my, my initial point is it was actually as a, as someone working in these businesses, I was really inspired and really excited by what marketplaces can give to the customer from a product perspective, just how much efficiency and quality and security they bring. And I ported that over to bubble now. So yeah, I'd say they are different, but they're, they're quite similar and many, many, many similarities that I've, I've managed to um, carry over with me. So my advice is, you know, understand what your transferable skills are. Um, and don't be overly phased about switching industries because there's, there's many, many similarities, uh, that, that will stand you in good stead. I think it's a very good point. And it's something that is talked about, you know, from the last series with Anne Bowden from Starling Bank and Hayden Wood from Bull, you know, both founded unicorns and employ over a thousand people now, but actually they didn't take a lot of people from financial services or energy backgrounds in particular. There's so many transferable skills from so many different industries. And sometimes you can overlook that when you're, you know, you are stuck in a vertical of a particular sector. So I think it's really, it's a really good point. It is a really good point. And I, when I was working at market invoice in that bubble is sometimes when you're hiring people, you can instinctively want sector experience. But actually when you're trying to innovate and do something new in a sector, you want different skill sets and people who have, you know, not necessarily worked in the sector, because if everyone in that sector had been doing such a phenomenal job, you wouldn't need to innovate necessarily in that sector and you wouldn't, wouldn't need to disrupt it. So looking outside is, is, is actually, you know, sometimes it isn't instinctively where, where you want to go, but in my experience, you end up with a better decision when you've cast the net a bit wider and taken people from other sectors. Very true. Tell us about your light bulb moment for Bubble. Um, and quite often I realise that it's 
it's almost like these electrical lights I talk about when I came up with the idea for the podcast, one of those old fluorescent lights that flashes a few times before it turns on properly. You know, quite rarely in an entrepreneur's journey is there a kind of like complete moment. But tell us about the initial spark for the idea behind Bubble and where it came from. Yeah, I agree that it was probably a series of moments. The first one being probably within like 48 hours of my first kid being born and just realizing how unbelievably difficult parenting is, which sounds like a simple, stupid thing to say, but you, you've got a kid yourself and anyone with kids would yeah. tell you it's not till the kid arrives uh, that it really dawns on you just how, how difficult it is. So quite quickly, I was like, hang on, you know, this is, what was it? What were we at the time? 2013, you know, digital technology had uh, thankfully made so many things easier in our lives, but parenting hasn't got any easier, right? And I think in a way that's kind of like, probably like a good reason, like it's supposed to be hard, but it, it, it just interested me in how like this fundamental thing is still so incredibly difficult in a world where almost everything else has been made so much easier. And Bubble in particular, we were abroad and we were with my brother and sister-in-law and we were about to cancel our plans because we couldn't find a babysitter that night. My sister-in-law said, you know, someone at my work's sister does babysitting for a few of the guys that work there. Everyone loves her. She's great. And 20 minutes later, this girl's at our door and we're waiting to buy and we're delighted. And we go off and have a really nice evening out. They just thought of me like we knew nothing about that person. I couldn't even told you her surname. Like literally all it was, was my sister-in-law said, work colleague's sister does some babysitting. Everyone loves her. And I was looking, you know, I was considering now then. Up until that point, you know, the way we found childcare was we would never use an agency. You know, we would never, ever use an agency. We could be at a hotel. They could have a five-star vetted nanny service. And I would say, why don't we get a nanny for a couple of hours and go downstairs and enjoy dinner? And my wife would like look at me like, I'm mad. She'd never even consider it. And it was trust-based. Even though these people were vetted in like an old school, traditional way, it wasn't solving the trust issue. And here was someone we knew literally nothing about. Uh, but we were absolutely delighted to book her in a heartbeat. What we realize is all we did there, we were leveraging the trust of another parent that we trusted. You know, so every parent loves their kid the most in the world. And parents, I think, generally appreciate that. So when you have another parent you trust, and then you have to be your best friend, you just trust them and tell you that may use this person, you will book that person. So that's really what spot bubble because I thought that was really interesting something that you could digitize, right? So we are constantly, we are all surrounded by a network of parents who have a very, very small network of sitters themselves. You know, if you're lucky, you have one, two, three, but when you put all of that together, we're surrounded by a huge network of people that we would potentially use in a heartbeat. And, but we don't know that we don't know who they are. We have no easy way of finding them. So that was the moment where it kind of like, me, well, hang on, maybe this industry, like people have been looking how do I build trust? They've been looking at it in the wrong way. They've been looking at it as like, you need a vetting, like an old school vetting process where you need like Mary Poppins style characters. That's what enables parents to transact and have confidence to transact. And we looked in a completely different way. And I was like, no, that's absolutely not true. That is wrong. What parents predominantly need is show me who my friends use and show me who other parents use. And obviously with social networking and, and app-based products, like that was being done already in other use cases. So it was about applying that to Bubble. It's a, a great point. I mean, we were talking beforehand, you know, part of the reason I came across Bubble was that I worked with the guys at Form Ventures who have backed you and I have a small stake in that as, as well. And actually, even though I'm, 
knew that we'd backed you and what you did. It was only when our NCT group had talked about how they'd used you that we ended up using Bubble more and more. And it's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I sort of put my money in and that almost doesn't, you know, that doesn't have the same impact when it comes to trust as that personal referral from people. And I can tell people, you know, my wife went back to work because of the pandemic in the NHS. And that's why I started this podcast was that I was able to record it from home and do it during nap times at the beginning when I was a stay-at-home dad. But even now, when things change at the last minute, you know, we are able to use Bubble and kind of sort things out. I know you encourage it not for the for the same day necessarily, but it has allowed that to take place. And we've now got this network of sitters that are, you know, all around us that we would just never have had any idea about. Yeah, no, totally. Sometimes I think, bu- not necessarily Bubble, but childcare or um, it, it's trivialized, right? And I don't think necessarily it's always appreciated the, the really profound impact that it has on the user's life. Like we have parents using us who say, look, I, this, as well, very often, you know, I've moved, I'm not from the area I live in now. I don't live anywhere near, I have no family and support networks and I have no one. Like we, we, we really literally have no one we can call on. And they go from that to getting onto bubble, building up a stable of, of carers in their area. And they say like, it's completely changed my life for the better. You know, that's the impact of what we're doing, but it's not easy. Like what I would say is like, we're by no means like cracked a stigma or definitely like cracked an emotional instinctive reaction that people have to bubble. I think like to, you know, to be fair, like a lot of disruptive businesses before us, you know, there's still, you'll be at a dinner party and you'll mention bubble and half the parents will say that's mental. I've never used that. And half the parents will say it's the greatest thing ever because childcare is such a sensitive area. I have a particular family member who's never used it, right? And I know she'll never use it. You know, you speak, you speak to parents sometimes and you can tell within 10 seconds, uh, even though they're nodding and smiling, that they've got this block in their mind that they will simply not use, whether it's an app for childcare or anything for childcare. It takes, it takes a long time to chip away at that. Um, and we've obviously done that over the, over the last few years, but we still see it every day with parents who conceptually love the idea of Bubble. They need help desperately. They really want to use it. They look around the app, they flirt with it, they toy with it, but they cannot bring themselves to push that button and book that person because we know it's such an emotional decision. And one of our product challenges, especially, is like, how do we build a product that tackles those things in, in, the, in the smallest, most sensitive way? It's a really, really big challenge. We've done, we've done really well so far, but we've by no means cracked it. So on that, you, you are doing you know, really interesting work for how you break down those barriers and so on. And so what are the kind of roles that you're hiring for? I mean, obviously you're looking at carers and getting more of those on, on board and we'll come back to that. But in terms of the, the technical side and building the product, what are the types of skills that you're looking for and what are the jobs that you are hiring for? Yeah, so we're hiring for a few jobs at the moment. We're definitely trying to build out our product and technical team capabilities on the product management side as well. People who can come in and really get to the heart of what holds parents back specifically. Very rare you'll find a parent says, I don't need help with childcare. Or very rare you'll find a parent says, like, childcare doesn't stress me out there. They're, they're one of the very, very lucky ones. The truth is whether they have, are fortunate to have a lot of childcare help or have no, none, they either need some or they need more. So for us, like we have this, we have this really big challenge of it's not all about certain major new features that we need to roll out. It's even things like 
the words that you use in the product and the way you talk to customers after they sign up. There's a lot of work we need to do to really get into some of the science behind that and, and the subconscious and the emotional side to that. So product people right now who can really get to the heart of those issues is a real priority for us because that's really key to, I think, unlocking and scaling demand on our side. We, we haven't invented a problem that doesn't exist. Like it very, very clearly exists, but the delivery of it is really, really hard. And that's why, you know, there wasn't a bubble before bubble, even though like this, this problem has lasted, has been around for so long, it affects millions of people, billions have spent on it. Some people have tried and have failed and there hasn't been a great tech or startup success story in this space yet because the challenge is so hard. So product people who can help us really get to the nub of that issue and build and focus and prioritize features and services that really get to get to the heart of that are our real priority for us right now. And, it, and thankfully the interest in that role is really good because it's a really interesting challenge, but we're also hiring like other technical roles because there are lots of features we want to roll out. What we've learned, childcare is really hard to commoditize. You know, you think you're going to build this on-demand app and ultimately you want this really seamless user experience where, you know, if it's a ride hailing app, it's like, I just need to get from customer from A to B, or I want to order food. I, I, you know, I want to order from this restaurant. I want the food delivered. Childcare is completely different for lots of reasons, but particularly because that what we're seeing from customers is they want lots of different things and trying to kind of fit that into an app-based product is, is really hard. So we're hiring engineers, we're hiring product people. We're also looking very much like on the supply side. So we've been building our supply teams to I the people whose job it is to make sitters and carers on our platform successful because we talk about parents a lot on Bubble, but we have two customer bases. We have a carer customer base as well, who thankfully generally love the service, but we, we have loads of things we want to do on that side to really help them upskill to help them win more work, to help them earn more money. And um, we're really passionate about that as well. And when it comes to the, the childcare sector, obviously it is a sector that's existed since the start of time. And do you see it though, as something that is going to go through some exponential growth in terms of the size of the market? So in the way that Uber kind of actually ended up expanding the taxi private vehicle market by making it cheaper, more flexible, meant that the number of rides that were taken pre-pandemic, obviously, actually increased exponentially. Is that what you think that Bubble can do for the childcare sector? Absolutely. And, you know, it's still relatively small scale, but that's what we're seeing with how customers use our service today. So look, you, the example you gave earlier where you were using someone just downstairs while you were recording a podcast, you know, that doesn't exist before bubble, you know, yes, there are, there are, there are nanny agencies, um, many of them that have existed over the years, but the utility of the bubble is very unique. And all of a sudden we are giving people the use cases and the options to find someone at short notice for a couple of hours while they record a podcast upstairs. There's no alternative to that other than us. So when we, we talk about it as like a shadow market or in terms of like expanding the market, that's exactly what bubble does because it's a brand new utility at a parent's fingertips. So naturally, like when I was, you know, on the kitchen table, trying to write the first business case for bubble, like the first thing I did was try and model, right? Like how many times a month do parents go out and we did, but we did some surveys and we tried to build like a frequency, a customer frequency, but those answers that, that exists in a world where finding childcare is impossible. So someone says to you, you know, yeah, I would typically maybe use a babysitter or a nanny like five times a year to work once a month. Yeah, because you don't do it because organizing it's impossible. So there's 
definitely a similarity we see with how like an Uber, for example, has, has not just replaced uh, taxi usage, it's, it's massively exponentially increased it. And we see that with how our customers use the service. It's like, right, I, I get onto Bubble, maybe it was for an emergency, or maybe it was that, you know, Saturday night out or that wedding that was coming up. But then hang on, I've just realized I've got this tool now where I can find great help at a moment's notice. And what I love to see is actually the really boring use cases of the app. You know, so people using it for, I've got to go to a house viewing or a PTA meeting, or I want, I've got to go shopping for an hour, uh, or I want to go to the gym for an hour. Those use cases are, are very plentiful on Bubble. And those are the types of things that without a service like ours, you're not, you're not using that. You're not using a sitter. So we, we feel really strongly we're in, you know, going back to talking about the sitter side and the provider side on our platform, we're massively expanding their early opportunities as well as parents' general opportunities to go out and do things. And yeah, that's what took me my surprise a bit. You know, when I, when I started Bubble, definitely the first thing in my mind was, you know, socializing in the evenings and weekends and Saturday nights out. But very quickly it morphed into just this uh, dozens of use cases. And that's why we're so passionate and excited about our particular slice of what is a vast childcare market, which is this on-demand, flexible in-home childcare, um, because that doesn't really exist beforehand. And we think as a huge, a huge opportunity uh, to grow that market. And do you think that there is a business to business opportunity as well in the market in the sense of we are all working, well, we're not all, I've fallen into my own trap there. There's a lot of people in white collar industries that are working more flexibly, working at home, but there is going to be this dependency in terms of, you know, a lot of employers are saying, you can have that flexibility, but you need to be able to come into the office on the next, you know, you need to be able to come in by the next day for emergencies and client meetings, et cetera. Do you think that B2B space is quite interesting? And also the way that the is changing. One of the things I've realized doing the nursery drops and pickups most of the time now is that actually I really quite enjoy spending time with my daughter in the morning because she's more energetic, she's more full of life and just kind of more rested, et cetera. You know, when she gets back from nursery, inevitably kind of a bit more tired, et cetera. And I've almost shifted my working day now to sort of spending more time with her in the mornings, which I just think is really interesting in terms of that development and that flexibility that's creating. But it didn't make me think of the wider B2B opportunity in terms of being able to sell to companies to allow employers to have that flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. So we've, it was something we were thinking about pre-COVID, but the pandemic has definitely accelerated it. So we now, we do have a B2B service. So we're starting to work with companies who are coming to us and what they're doing, we're selling our service to them. So they're buying either like subscriptions for our service for their employees, or they're going beyond that, which is always what we encourage and actually subsidizing the childcare that, that uh, parents can book through our platform. So we believe really strongly in the B2B opportunity. You know, one of the very few like positives potentially to come out of the pandemic is not just with regards to childcare, but overall employee well-being and health is something companies are going to have to and are thinking a lot more carefully about. So benefits um, like bubble and childcare are definitely much more on the agenda. We've seen a lot more interest uh, over the last few months than we ever did before. So yes, I think there's a huge employer opportunity and we're starting to do some work in that area and, and, and win some customers. But it's, it's a hard road uh, because I still think childcare especially is a hard one for employers to get their head around. And again, a bit like we're doing in the B2C space, we're trying to create 
the demand and generate the demand. We're not a, I don't know, SaaS-based CRM software that a business knows they need and they've got to pick, pick someone out of competitors. Here, it's like going into companies and some of them really, really get it. You know, it's coming from the top down, you know, director levels. We have to do more to support the women in our business, the parents in our business, but a lot of it, it's not coming top down. So you have a, a really big job on to convince companies, especially in the current environment, to start spending money on this. The business case on paper is just incredibly strong. You know, I, I often speak to companies and ideologically it kind of feels like we're pushing against an open door because it improves their employees' happiness, retention. It massively improves their productivity. You know, if you're a law firm, for example, and you charge someone out at 500 quid an hour, should you really be quibbling about getting them a nanny for 12 pound an hour so that they can actually do their work? So the business case is really strong, but as is, as is always the case with all B2B sales, yeah, it's a long cycle and childcare especially is a hard subject. You know, it's a lot of the, all, a lot of the anxieties I spoke about with B2C around childcare and the sensitivity absolutely exists in the B2B space as well. So uh, that's stuff we're working through at the moment, but you're totally right to think of that because funnily enough, you know, Bubble as a flexible childcare solution is now better positioned post pandemic than we were pre pandemic because the world of work has changed. People are not going to work nine to five from the office anymore. They're going to work flexibly. They're going to work in a hybrid fashion. And we're telling employers, you know, it's all well and good telling your people that they can do that. But if you don't, they don't have childcare provision, it's not going to work. You know, they're going to be miserable and they're not going to be productive. Whether it's like the office equipment you're giving people or the dongles or the Wi-Fi access or whatnot or their, or their office chair, like childcare, it's something that a huge portion of your employee base need for hybrid and flexible work to be successful. And you should be thinking about that. A lot of companies are, I'm speaking to a lot of them, but a lot of them for different reasons aren't yet. But yes, we do see it as a, as a big opportunity. And that's why we've started to, yeah, do more, do more in the space. You've raised capital already. How did you go about that when you were doing the business models on your kitchen table? Uh, you know, how much have you raised today and, and how did you go about that? In total now, over the five and a bit years, I think we've raised just under five million quid. Um, but we, you know, we haven't done it in a classic, I would say, tech startup way. Just before the pandemic, we did our first institutional fundraise led by Ada Ventures. Being honest, like it took, it took us a while to kind of really start to generate serious like institutional interest. And now there's a lot of people I think who are following our progress because this is such a massive space and such an obvious problem. And I think everyone kind of feels like, hold on, something, someone's going to crack it in childcare and build huge businesses out of it. But in the early days that like, we were angel funded and thankfully like the benefit of working at Betfair, for example, is you, you have this network of people who have been very, very successful and now are, are investing in other tech startups. So we, we tapped that quite early on, but we did a series of smallish raises, I would say, up to the point that we did our, we did our institutional round with Ada Ventures. And look, I, I put that down to the, the, the sector we're in. Uh, it's, it's a hard sector and there's risk associated. So you have conversations with investors that they just don't want to touch it. It's like, if you go into a meeting and the first thing in the investor asked me was what happens if something goes wrong, right? I kind of knew this isn't going anywhere because if you have that emotional instinctive fear about it, it's, it's always, I could say, whatever I could say, it's, it's almost impossible to get them over it. And in those first few years, whether it was investors, customers, family, friends, I spent a lot of my time just trying to tell people, look, I'm not crazy. Like this will work. People will use this thing. And now, thankfully, we definitely not, I'd say like totally won that argument from a consumer perspective, but we now have years and we have hundreds of thousands of bookings to point to 
where it's like, no, no, this does work. Um, and you kind of move on from that discussion. And now it comes more into like, okay, how do you actually scale it into a business of a certain size? But I think that contributed to this kind of weariness around the childcare space. You know, if it's such a huge market, such a big pain point, and there's so much money being spent on childcare, why hasn't anyone done it already? And that's what I always found a bit frustrating and surprising. Like when you start a business, you think, the first thing you think of is like, has anyone done this already? Like, am I the first? And you get like really excited if you think you are. You think that's what you want to be and that's going to help you. In our case, like what I realized was we probably could have benefited from other people, whether it was in the UK or abroad, building this business first. And then you kind of piggy, piggyback on, on the back of that, their success. Because especially in the VC space, like there's a lot of groupthink and there's a lot of people following other people around and funnily enough, it didn't matter how brilliant the idea was or how well it was doing organically or how big the market was. People were spooked by the fact that, well, why isn't anyone cracked this yet? That was why we, we ended up raising in a few rounds from a few angel investors, uh, before we did a, a fundraise, um, just before the pandemic. And just one of the questions on, we, we talked about coming back to it a number of times. So the skills, jobs of the future, particularly when it comes to carers. What are you looking for there? And what are the skills that are going to be required um, in carers in the future? Because you've got 50,000 now as part of the network, I think. Yeah, about that. It's about, it's about 20,000 are currently, like, I would say, approved and live on the platform. But the overall basis is around that, yeah. Um, and so what are the skills that you, know, you look for in that process? Because, as I say, coming at it from a consumer, struck by the variety of people that, that come through from actors and actresses that you know, have been partly out of work and looking to top up income to students to professional and proper you know, nannies and, and full-time carers. So I'm just intrigued as to the process that you go about and the skills that you look for when bringing someone onto the platform. Well, the first thing to say is there's a standardized verification process that all of them need to go through. So ID check, online background check, reference checking. But then beyond that, I think the way we look at it is we don't look for anyone in particular. It's the beauty of Bubble. And I think what you touched on with Paratory Value is the breadth of the marketplace in terms of the types of people that are offering to sit for you. Um, and so like you say, you know, a lot of people who work in childcare on Bubble, you know, they could be childminders, they could be a nursery key workers, teachers. Uh, then you have nurses, you know, loss of nannies, for example. And then you have the more like student population, because this is just a fantastic job for a student compared to some of the other jobs open to them, right? So actors, actresses is, is a really nice uh, niche of people who, who are on the platform. And I think we don't then get overly specific about what we're looking for from them once they've gone through the initial verification. It's more about giving them the platform to showcase their their skills because we know parents are really different in terms of what they need. You know, I mentioned it earlier how childcare is really like hard to commoditize in an app experience because every sit is different. So we have parents who like may only want a student. You know, they want a young, super energetic, bubbly, enthusiastic student. The beauty about that as well is they can hone in students with particular like music skills, for example, or language skills, because their their outlook on parenting or their kids and what they're into is a great match for that. But then you'll have other parents who, for whatever reason, no, no, I only want a 15 year experienced maternity nurse. And again, that depends on parents' sensibilities and their outlook, but also actually the age of their kids. You know, people with newborns need, need a different skill set. People who are booking in the nighttime need someone different who's booking in the day. You know, when we're using it myself, my wife and I, someone to come and help us at 4.30 till 7 
for like the bath and bedtime routine when the kids are awake, we will look for a different profile of person than an 8.30 Saturday night sitter when my kids are asleep who, you know, all being well, isn't going to interact with the kids at all. So there's, a, there's like a baseline of like quality that, which is a high threshold that carers need to go through. But beyond that, like we see our job and, and this is what I didn't like about the agency model where it's like one size fits all. And again, the conventional wisdom is that parents, what they want is, you know, 20 year experience, Mary Poppins style character. And I, that's just not true. That's overkill the majority of the time, especially when we're talking about like ad hoc, flexible childcare. Obviously everyone needs to meet a baseline level of like security, but beyond that, actually, I want someone not necessarily super experienced, but like I touched on before, who has that like enthusiasm and personality that I love. And, and the other thing, what we realized is yes, the carers are, are looking after the kids, but it's such a personal chemistry between the parent and the nanny and the parent and the babysitter that that is absolutely vital and parents are paying a lot of attention to that. So yeah, we, we, we're very focused on building tools that give the different personalities and the diverse range of providers on our platform skills to showcase that because we know that's what parents really value. They don't just want one type of care. Agreed very much. I think that is a, um, a very good point. And so just a quick final couple of questions. What's the one piece of advice that you would give to the government in terms of how to build back better post the pandemic? Yeah, so it's, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that because we're, we're trying to do a lot of work on our side to speak to people within government and, you know, to be fair, they're being you know, fairly receptive and, um, around these issues because ultimately there is a systemic failure in the childcare market, especially in the UK. It's crazy expensive for the vast majority of parents who can't afford it. And on the flip side of that, you've got providers who aren't paid enough. And that's when there's, there's this like market failure. It's one of the challenges about our business. You know, we're trying to build a, a marketplace platform where parents can pay less for their childcare amongst other things. Providers can earn more and we in the middle can be a viable business, I guess, in the meantime. But government support, therefore, is absolutely critical. And so one of the things we talk to government a lot about is opening their eyes a bit more to, this, to new forms of childcare and the new ways that parents want and need to access childcare. You know, the way government legislation around childcare typically works, it was written before uh, the iPhone existed, you know, and, and by that, I mean, who can benefit from like government subsidies and government funding? It's all linked to Ofsted registration, i.e. approved childcare. And to be approved childcare, you need to be Ofsted registered. Now that for lots of reasons, that Ofsted registration is completely not appropriate or viable, for example, to the, to the, to the childcare that's, that's offered through Bubble right, which is much more ad hoc, much more flexible in-home, et cetera. But currently, you know, the customers bang on my door like almost every day saying, I'm entitled to all this government support. I'm using Bubble so I can work, for example. And it's absolutely insane that I can't tap into government budgets to do that, even though there's government budgets like massively under, I mean, there's like 2.7 billion of underspend in like childcare funding in the government's own budget. So we're speaking to the government at the moment about, look, we need to look again especially in light of COVID and how that has just accelerated the, the change in work, working patterns, what your, your current funding initiatives uh, and how parents who are using different forms of childcare than an Ofsted approved childminder should be able to, to access it. Because everyone wins ultimately, you know, the government have, have set aside money aside to help working families and working parents. These working parents and working families are using platforms like ours super successfully. 
but they're not able to access that funding. And it's, it's not, it's, it's purely by a, by a like legislative design that was just, like I said, done before these things existed. So from a, from a government perspective, it's just, and they are engaging with us, thankfully, and there is good, goodwill and good desire to kind of look at these things and, and, and make some changes there. The other thing I'd say is, um, oh, there's always desire in government to, to look at things. It's getting yeah, stuff it just done in forever. government. <laughs> like that. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. But look, I have sympathy because as I keep, I've probably said a few times, right. Is like, it's such a hard space. You know, childcare is, it's, it's so, so difficult. Yeah. Even, even, even not even just focusing on the whole trust issue. It's really, really hard. However, it's such a major problem. So yes, I think there should be more impetus around giving parents more access, like in other countries, to be honest, there are other countries in Europe where it's just a much simpler process for parents to, um, to get their, to get childcare support from the government. Um, and, and lastly as well, just on the B2B side, by the way, um, I think it's crazy how companies who want to fund the childcare of their staff, they, they, it gets treated like a benefit in kind. So, you know, companies are coming to us and some are saying, I want to give everyone a thousand pounds to spend on childcare, but because it's a normal benefit in kind, that's going to cost me the best part of 2000 pounds sometimes. So that feels as well, like a, like something that the government should be thinking about and a, and a particularly, I never say easy win, but a way to get the private sector actually funding it all. But that is very interesting. Well, we should, um, we should talk some things about that in a bit more, uh, in a bit more detail off, yeah. offline, because I'm sure it's something I could help with on that. So just two quick, I mean, this has been fascinating, Ari, and we've had so, we've talked so much, but two kind of quick fire ones I wanted to finish with. Almost the Jim Shark question. First episode of this series was with Ben Francis, who's obviously built this enormous um, yeah. company in, in Jim Shark, and was just wondering how, you know, and he started it to keep his mental health and his physical fitness uh, in shape. And was just curious as to how you do that as a as a founder. And also, um, I'm a big fan of the Lockdown Parenting Help podcast with Rob Beckett and Josh Widdicombe and their advice to fathers throughout it um, for how to cope. And was just wondering what your top advice was to young dads out there. Yeah, so on the... On the first, the first question, what do I do for downtime? I mean, sports, you know, I've always played Sunday league football very seriously. It's my three, four hours a, a week where I can totally switch off. And I know other founders, yeah, it's so vital. And I'm really thankful. And I've got a really supportive wife who, who takes our three kids for Sunday morning because she kind of sees firsthand the importance that having some pure time to myself to just totally switch off is, is a huge part of my week, unfortunately. I'm injured at the moment and I don't know when I'll, when I'll be coming back. So I'm going to need to find something else because having that time uh, in a day or in the week to totally switch off is incredibly important. Another small practical tip, I can't remember who gave it to me, was I don't, I've stopped taking my phone into, into the bedroom in most nights. Well, every night, sorry. So again, obviously so much, so much written about how we all kind of spend time scrolling mindlessly on our phone. And what I always found was whenever I was on my phone in bed late at night, it'd invariably be the time where I'd come across a new competitor or a competitor ad or a piece of bad news. And it was just killing me basically. So it wasn't just turning my phone off. Someone actually, I can't remember where I read it. Someone said, you can't just, ha- you can't have your phone in the room. You know, you've got to actually put it downstairs and you've got to be disciplined that you don't, you don't look at it until you've actually woken up that day, had your shower, probably seen your kids for the first time and then gone downstairs. Because what I found really interesting was, okay, I'm not going to check my phone at night, but you roll over in the morning and then you, your first interaction with the day is with your phone. 
often the only things that have happened overnight. It's normally bad news. So your first interaction with the day is bad, either on a conscious or even subconscious level. And that actually sets you then up for the rest of the day. You know, your kid then births in the room and you're first, you know, you're naturally frustrated at that point and that impacts how the day. So what I found was actually taking it out of the room and I don't actually check it out probably, you know, half an hour until I'm up when, I'm, when I've got myself ready has made personally like a massive difference uh, to me. So I'm constantly like advising people to do that. Although I know it's, I know it's really, really hard. And yeah, on the, on the second point, like advice wise, look, I think, I think young, being a young parent, young dad, it's, it's quite similar to actually a startup. Um, I think you've got to just accept that you're not going to know what you're doing most of the time. And that things are going to go wrong, which happens at a startup that happens with, with parenting. And I think if you can, you know, and I've seen with what self over is. Sounds a bit like get, working Downing Street, to be honest. Well, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it is. Right. And so it's almost like you need to get good at accepting that's going to happen. It doesn't mean you just down tools, obviously, and they try and like prevent these things, but it's just going to happen. And maybe in the early days. You know, you can get so flustered when these things do go wrong, but when you get actually quite good at realizing this is just part and parcel of the roller coaster of the journey you're on, you, you react in such a more uh, calm and clear headed way. And you also don't have this constant sense of foreboding, which can also be really stifling and, and paralyzing, so to speak. So yeah, that would be my advice to like parents and I'm, I'm doing that thing. I probably absolutely hated everyone doing to me before I had kids of like giving advice, but yeah, just be comfortable and conscious that things are going to go wrong and you are like the rest of us um you know flailing around not really knowing what the hell you're doing and that's really really normal absolutely the mike tyson line of everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth yeah literally, um, literally i've been punched in the venice many times by my kids in bed Exactly. Ari, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure to have you on and hopefully we can do it in person later in the year. Sounds good. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode in the third series of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Word of mouth is everything in the audio world. So if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and send us to a friend. You can find us at Jimmy's Jobs on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also check out our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co for our episode archive, blog posts, and more. If you are a new listener, do look through our previous episodes. We've interviewed entrepreneurs disrupting industries from fintech to hospitality to modern engineering. So whatever sector you're interested in, there'll be something for you there. If you'd like to get in touch, please email us at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. Thanks to our producer, Leo Danchak, and thanks to George de Cleland for the artwork.